0: Um, Donna asked me to uh, speak on this topic looking at it from a a university um, perspective and I'm going to do that under three broad headings. I'm going to talk principally about research and I'm afraid when I talk about research I'm going to drift back into the law because that's a world I know. Um, Although I'm not um, a cultural heritage lawyer, I have friends who are but I'm not one myself, I'll touch briefly on teaching and I'll also deal very briefly with Um, what I would call wider engagement and if you look at even a university strategic plan you will often find research teaching and wider engagement as the three pillars on which a university is built. Now in relation to research I hope Emily would forgive me if I said that cultural heritage law has not until recently been a major focus for research in UK universities. Now at first sight that seems very odd if you take the slides that Donna showed at the beginning, we're dealing with an issue that's not new. The objects which are the subject of our discussion tend to be very old and of considerable significance to communities across the world. And one would expect them to be the subject of serious research. And of course they are. They're studied in many departments of the university, archeology, span history, classics. My point is not that the objects are not the subject of research, It's that the law relating to cultural cultural heritage has not been the subject of very significant and widespread research. Now looking at it from the perspective simply of, of a lawyer, I want to take the subject in three bits and I'll do it quickly. One is within national law, cultural heritage within national law. Then secondly, between national laws, and then thirdly, above national law, that is to say, as an aspect of international law. Now, if I take it within national law, why is it that cultural heritage law has enjoyed a low profile in the UK? Now, Timothy's already touched on what you might call the public law um, aspects of cultural heritage law and the, the regulation of um, land use and planning related matters. I am a professor of private law and so I tend to look at it through the lens of private law. And a main plank of cultural heritage law is property law. Now what we've seen this evening in a sense is people looking at property law from the perspective of intellectual property law. And that is a very important part of the picture. But if we looked at it as simply from personal property law, Timothy's already given um, the example of the the, the Mona Lisa, but you can have questions about who owns um, an asset or an object. Is it an individual? Is it a group? Is it a nation? How um, are these rights um, transferred? How are they lost? If you are the finder of such an object, what are your rights in relation to the object? why are these issues not explored in more detail in English law faculties? And one reason is when English lawyers talk about property law, they have traditionally thought that property law is land law. Because that's the subject that the profession has required um, English um, students to study, so you all teach, you're all taught land law and you can walk out of university thinking that property law and land law are the same thing. Whereas land law is a subset of property law. There's another aspect, personal property law. Now, I'm not saying for the avoidance of doubt that all cultural heritage law is personal property law, but there's a significant component that is. Where is that taught? Well, taught if at all, typically in commercial law um, courses. That's not universally so, the, this law faculty here does actually have um, an option in personal property law because we have had a number of people, Peter Burks, um, the former Regis professor, and now we've got um, Bill Swaddling and others who do teach personal property law, so it's there on the syllabus. But it doesn't actually. I looked today just to see what was on the syllabus. Does it encompass cultural heritage? Not really. I mean, it's a short course in seven weeks and it's covering really the creation of property rights and um, grants of security over property and these matters. But we're actually ahead of most people in terms of personal property law but but it's not an ideal position and of course if you don't have the grounding in personal property law it's therefore harder to get into some of the issues that come up here. A good friend of mine and former colleague um, Norman Palmer is I think one of the leading experts on these aspects of cultural um, heritage law in the UK. And Norman wrote a book on bailment, now I suspect most of you don't know what bailment is. But it's essentially, it's an example of a contract of hire, where um, an individual acquires rights and duties in relation to the goods and owes them to the owner of the goods. And of course, bailment sits at the intersection of property law and the law of obligations. And you can see how you can get from an interest in these issues into cultural Um, heritage cultural property because we've had examples here of issues relating to on the property side but Peter also gave us example of contractual issues which are arising where UCL are attempting to impose contractual obligations in relation to um, the use of um, materials and from that Norman has built up um, a practice as a barrister now but also public service in areas of um, art and dealing with complex issues about import and export of cultural objects, claims for the restitution of unlawfully removed heritage material, and repatriation claims by indigenous people. But there are not many um, Norman Palmers in university law faculties up and down uh, the country and Norman has actually What he does teach I think in Birmingham, the baton I think is passed to you Emily and others to the next generation to take these um, issues forward. But that is I think part of the explanation why um, some aspects of cultural heritage law haven't had the prominence that um, they might have because personal property law is not high on law faculties agenda. But that's cultural heritage law within legal systems you can also have issues arising between legal systems. And some of the most intractable problems in cultural heritage law arise between nation states over the return of objects whose origin was in country A, but have been held either publicly or privately in the law of country B. Then the question arises, whose law governs the, the rights in relation to the objects. Because it may not even be country A or B, it could in fact be country C, because what happened was that they were transferred from A to B under a contract governed by the law of country C. So you can actually get complex questions of private international law, not only of whose law governs the um, issue but which court has jurisdiction over the matter. But at this point, notice that what we're doing is we're, in both my first two categories, we're looking at cultural heritage law solely through the lens of national law, and we're accepting that there may be um, multi-jurisdictional issues. But what one is now beginning to see emerging is cultural heritage law above national law. That is to say it's becoming a matter of international law. And what you're seeing is UNESCO and other type of organizations taking steps in relation to the promulgation of international conventions or even accepting the continued role of nation states. You can look on the UNESCO website and find it's got a database of national heritage laws which is devised as quote an international solution to combat the illicit traffic of cultural property. I dare say the UNESCO website will not in and of itself bring an end to the illicit traffic of <laughs> cultural property but you can look there to find the law that might be applicable to your claim. But I think this is an area that I would predict will emerge as a bigger topic of research in years to come. And you, somebody mentioned um, human rights. I can't remember whether it was, it was you, Don, in your presentation. You can see now people beginning to use human rights as the lens through which to examine cultural heritage issues. And you can see it's being taken above the level of the nation state. So the nation state can't just simply say, this is our view of the matter and there is no further issue to be explored it becomes a matter of external uh, or sorry of international law so so within the law you can see multi-layered within the nation state between nation states and then at international level but of course i've been li- talking about research solely as a lawyer then the question is to turn to interdisciplinarity which is the subject that timothy uh, mentioned, and one of the interesting th- things that confronts me is a if, if you can use the word manager in, in relation to a university, is how do you um, encourage or foster new areas of research? I mean, one one way is for the, the senior management, if you have it, to decide that issue A is going to be the topic for the next year and you tip centrally devoted funds into issue A. So we decide that cultural heritage law is going to be Oxford's main focus for the next year. Well that's not how we operate <laughs> it's, and there are there are good reasons for that and many advantages to that but there are also disadvantages because the disadvantages it then becomes can be more difficult for subjects that cross disciplinary boundaries to emerge, you may um, miss issues. Well, actually, that to me doesn't worry me too much in the sense that no university can capture absolutely everything. Or the other thing you can have, and this university I think does it fairly regularly, is you have people working on exactly the same topic in different parts of the university and they don't know. They're working on the same issue and trying to grapple with the same problem. And that seems to me to be, how can the university foster that? And I think at the end of the day, sadly, it comes down to individuals. You need your champions, such as as Donna and others, who are actually saying, let's put my energy into getting people together and to see whether or not... Um, There are a group of people who are interested in the same topic and then you can begin to create a new community which can take forward interdisciplinary research. So that was my main point about research. Just very briefly, teaching. What what I did um, earlier in the week was just to type in cultural heritage into the um, university website. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll get anything, but um, I did actually pick up a course, a teaching program in archaeology on cultural heritage. There was the the sponsor and tutorial provided by Emily. There was also something in continuing education I discovered on cultural heritage. So so we do it. Um, And there is an interesting question, I think, for us as we try and develop new subjects, how best you provide the teaching to the students where... They're primarily in archaeology, but you can feed the legal aspects into um, the teaching, and how, as a university, should we best develop interdisciplinary um, teaching? That's a question I'm not going to try and answer. Last point: this university has a huge research output, great commitment to teaching. but it's also a curator. Of cultural heritage. In the Bodleian Library, in the museums, we have objects of national and international um, significance. Um, their role was publicly recognised two or three years ago in the award of the um, Queen's Anniversary Prize, which encompassed the um, Bodleian Library the four university museums, the Botanic Gardens, and the Beasley Archive. There you have a public recognition of the significance of our collections and the work that's done to make them accessible to the wider public. But there then comes a question, in my mind at least, there's all this re- there's research being done here. And what impact does that research have on the policies that the university develops in relation to the curation of objects and in relation to the obligations which are cast upon us in relation to the objects we have. Now we we have been fortunate, I mean Mike in copyright has been active in the the, the Bodleian for, for many years so it's not that the expertise is missing but we know the cultural heritage law raises issues of enormous sensitivity. Some of the examples that you gave uh, in, in the opening slides demonstrate that issue. And these issues can and will, at future times, apply to this university. And when they do, we need to be able to draw upon the research that's being done, in order to advise the university as to how best to discharge its obligations. And it seems to me that the people doing the research might be the type of people who should be sitting as a curator of the library, as a visitor of the museum, so that the benefit of your research then can feed into the university in its wider curatorial responsibility for the objects which are in our possession so that we discharge our obligations not only to current generations but to future generations but also I think to the past. Thank you very much.